Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, uh, and I am uh, pleased to be joined today by Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut, who is a member of the Committee on Financial Services, and perhaps more relevant to our discussion, a member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Congressman Himes, as I'm sure familiar to all of you, uh, from the plethora of hearings that we've gone through recently. Uh, and I'd like, if it's okay with you, Congressman, to begin by commenting on the fact that, you know, it seems that the impeachment um, hearings have uh, intensified recently, not just with the pace of, uh, of witnesses coming in or uh, the fact that a number of the witnesses are coming in despite the efforts of the the White House or the State Department. Um, but as facts are revealed, it seems that, uh, in particular, this Ukraine case uh, is touching more and more people in the administration, the president, uh, potentially the vice president, um, uh, the secretary of state, um, uh, potentially the attorney general. Uh, and then, of course, Rudy Giuliani and his interesting group of collaborators who seem to be conducting a a shadow foreign policy for the United States. Uh, and, and, and just with that as the preface, I'm just uh, interested in starting with your take on where we are now. You know, how, how do you how do you feel the events of this week um, uh, and the past couple of weeks, uh, you know, have changed the color of this this impeachment discussion. Yeah, good question, David. And I think um, uh, there's a fairly dramatic difference in the kind of investigation that the Congress is undertaking around this whole Ukraine mess than what we were doing uh, when we were doing the Russia investigation. Uh, And the big difference is, of course, the Russia investigation was driven primarily by work that Bob Mueller was doing, and he was doing it very quietly. Uh, You didn't really hear anything until he issued his report. Um, In contrast, of course, this Ukraine thing has come out because um, and only because a number of the president's people, um, and by president's people, I mean professionals, uh, presumably, uh, intelligence community people, diplomats, um, are raising their hand and saying, we can't abide by this anymore. Uh, it was, of course, a whistleblower who apparently is a relatively senior person in the intelligence community who filed the original whistleblower complaint. Um, and 
so this is being driven not by the Democrats. I mean, I know the president's uh, defense here is to attack Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats and Adam Schiff. But I mean, the metaphor I use, we're like outfielders just catching pop fly after pop fly that are that are hit by uh, people in inside the White House and around the president. So that's a big difference. The other big difference, of course, David, is that, you know, all of the other presumably impeachable offenses that we've talked about to date have been a little abstract. I mean, I think your average American citizen, the concept of obstruction of justice um, or the concept of, you know, what's involved in ignoring a congressional subpoena, these are pretty abstract things. But when you read the transcript, the so-called transcript of the president's conversation with Ukraine, and you hear what Rudy Giuliani apparently was doing as he ran around the world, I mean, this is out of the Godfather. This has a gangster-like quality, a sort of an extortion-like uh, story that I think most Americans can, can just understand in their gut. Well, you you brought up uh, ignoring subpoenas, and uh, although these podcasts live for several days out there on the internet, um, can't help but ignore the news of the day. And part of the news of today is that Rudy Giuliani's attorneys have said uh, that he is going to ignore the congressional uh, subpoenas uh, without any grounds. I think the, the 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 response of the attorney was something to the effect of. Well, let's see if they enforce it, and then we'll reconsider. Uh, and I think, by the way, there is an implicit in that uh, one of the criticisms that some of the Democratic leadership have gotten, uh, which is there's not you know, a lot of clarity about how you enforce it, and will you enforce it, and what do you do next? Because if Rudy Giuliani says, nah, and you guys just say, well, that's further obstruction, um, that doesn't seem like it's got much teeth and it doesn't seem like it'll encourage other reluctant witnesses to step forward. So what do you do in a situation like this? Yeah, I mean, but I will observe, of course, that this week, um, you know, starting with Ambassador Yovanovitch last week, um, uh, members uh, of the federal government, of the executive, have come in uh, pursuant to subpoenas. So um, we don't have a lot of examples of people just thumbing their nose entirely at a subpoena, and, and many of the witnesses this week, of course, have been have been subpoenaed. Um, and 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 look, um, there's not much mystery to the ending of uh, of the story of ignoring a congressional subpoena. That will end with the person doing the ignoring in a very bad way, fined, jailed, some other sanction. There's not there's not a lot of ambiguity in the law, uh, meaning you know should the Congress choose to enforce it subpoena by going to a judge, um, you know, there's, it's not going to take the judge a heck of a long time to say to Rudy Giuliani, look, you can assert client, uh, attorney-client privilege. You, uh, uh, there may be privileges that you can assert, but nobody has the right to uh, ignore a subpoena. So what the challenge there, of course, David, is, is, is time. Um, and, you know, going to a court, uh, of course, takes some time, which raises the other interesting issue um, that I'm sure that you and some of your listeners will be aware of, which is that until the 1950s or so, Congress had its own internal po uh, process to enforce its own subpoena known as inherent contempt. It, well out of use now for some you know, two generations, but for you know, a very, very long time, Congress would actually hold trials within the Congress using all the due process protections that, uh, that are typical in a trial. And if somebody who was ignoring a, a uh, was showing contempt for Congress uh, was convicted in one of those trials, Congress could actually, believe it or not, jail, but much more likely uh, in the modern era, uh, assess fines on individuals who showed contempt for the Congress. 
do you think there's any chance realistically that inherent contempt would actually be used? Well, um, I certainly, uh, you know, I don't speak for the Speaker of the House. Uh, she certainly speaks for herself. But if it is essential that Congress assert its authorities as a co-equal branch of government um, designed very specifically to act as a check and a balance on the other branches and in the, on the executive in particular. And if the executive is ignoring that fundamental constitutional privilege or, or, or structure, um, I would say that there's no tool that is, um, you know, certainly that has historical precedent that shouldn't be considered. Our system doesn't work if one branch refuses to defer to the other in, in you know, as quite frankly, the Trump administration has done. They've, they've sort of played at this over the years. You know, they've asserted executive privilege for people who don't work for the president. Uh, they've exerted executive privilege for conversations that happened prior to Donald Trump becoming president. So we've seen a disturbing willingness to tilt at ignoring uh, the Congress's constitutional responsibilities. But no, to answer your question, uh, if the president is going to drive the United States government into a constitutional crisis, we should be prepared to meet the, that crisis with, 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 you know, as, with all of the tools at our disposal. I think that, uh, you know, that's a heartening thing for many people to hear, because, as you say, there have been a number of instances where the White House has defied the Congress, whether it has been on issues of executive privileges or a privilege or on the issue of, uh, uh, of the, the uh, legal requirement. They submit their the taxes to the Ways and Means Committee, which they uh, sidestepped, or or the effort to preclude certain people from testifying. Now, on the other hand, you have had this phenomenon that you that you mentioned, which is that a number of members of the uh, Foreign Service, or or um, you know, essentially, you know, longtime professional members of the United States government, have chosen, um, I think, to honor their oaths of office and to do as they've done throughout their careers and put country first and not be political, uh, whether it was Ambassador Yovanovitch or with Fiona Hill or uh, some of the other folks who have agreed to come up and testify. And the, the, the picture they're painting is of a White House um, that knew it was doing something wrong and was trying to hide it, whether it was putting files into highly uh, classified you know, compartments where they couldn't be found, uh, records of phone conversations, uh, or, or otherwise trying to hide bad behavior. Uh, and you know, I think you know, one of the other big news items of this week when Fiona Hill was testifying, apparently, or being deposed, um, was that she indicated that John Bolton, who is not known as, you know, a uh, 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 sort of a quiet follower or or as a guy who um, uh, you know doesn't have so, uh, pretty strong political views uh, also recognized that this was wrong and suggested that it be reported to uh, the NSC legal counsel and and I'm wondering how significant do you think it is that Bolton would say that and is it likely that we'll see Bolton in front of these committees soon? Yeah, good 
Good question. Um, I, I, I think the fact itself is, is really important. You know, the president to this day maintains that the conversation that he had with the Ukrainian president was, in his word, perfect. Um, the problem is nobody else thinks that that's true. And, and, and by the way, I mean, Donald Trump is a complicated man with, I think, a uh, less than polished set of ethics. And so maybe he does believe that it was perfect. But the Everyone around him, including the attorneys who apparently – and again, this comes out of the transcript. This is not something that is sort of subject to you know, interpretation. Apparently, people uh, that were on the phone call were so disturbed by the nature of the phone call that, as you pointed out, they decided to take measures to hide the transcript. Um, and then, of course, you had a whistleblower and maybe a second whistleblower. So it appears that everybody except Donald Trump and maybe Mike Pence, who uh, you know, I don't know where his ethics are, but we do know that Mike is a pretty simple algorithm rhythm of supporting whatever it is that the president of the United States wants, um, everyone except the president thinks that this phone call was a real problem. Uh, and I don't think, again, we're not, we're not really disputing the facts here. The president's not disputing the facts. Um, what, what I think Congress needs to do now, and this, to, this gets to your question about John Bolton. Um, it also, by the way, raises the question of Rudy Giuliani. We need to understand the depth and breadth of the president's efforts to um, get other countries to basically do his political dirty work for him and to threaten uh, the interest of the United States, and in this case, the, the military aid that we were to have sent to Ukraine, in order to achieve his political objectives. That's the core impeachable offense here. And there's no reason to believe, since the president looked into a number of cameras um, shortly after the whistleblower complaint came out and asked China to do exactly the same thing, there's no reason to believe that, that, that there are clear limits on the extent to which the official uh, policy of the United States was portrayed by people like Rudy Giuliani um, as being all about the political support of the president. And apparently, again, um, I, I wasn't actually in the Hill hearing, so I, I don't know any more than you do on the topic, but I, I apparently um, uh, Hill uh, suggested that Bolton had real problems with this. So, of course, we want to hear from him because he would have had, uh, he would have had a view of, uh, as national security advisor of foreign policy much more broadly than just the Ukraine. Well, I, I want to come back to this in a second, but um, uh, as, as as you mentioned this, I, you know, one of the issues is, uh, is this an isolated event or is there a pattern of events that come out of it? And what I'll do in a second is come back to the pattern that's associated with um, the White House and Trump uh, on 2020 campaign. Uh, also, Ukraine seems to impact the 2016 campaign. But you know, there's a related story which has gotten a lot less coverage, um, and that is that Attorney General Barr seems to be on an around-the-world tour seeking information from uh, allies to, um, into, you know, about the FBI and CIA investigations that were associated with um, the Russia hack in 2016 and subsequent events. Uh, he's gone to the British, he's gone to the Italians, he's apparently gone to the Australians and said, what do you got? Um, and we don't know whether there's a quid pro quo involved in that. And you could argue that the attorney general is within his rights, the president has asked him to investigate this. Or you could argue that it has been clearly established that there was a national security threat here. Every intelligence agency agreed to that. 
Many foreign powers have agreed to that. It was a clear threat, and it would actually be dereliction of their duty for the FBI and the CIA not to uh, investigate it, and that therefore his purpose could only be political. And if, in fact, it's political, then it's exactly the same as the Biden thing. And I'm wondering how you equate the two, or do you equate the two? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, particularly since it points to an earlier question you asked, which is how can Congress um, enforce its subpoenas? You know, traditionally, of course, you would make, if somebody ignores a congressional subpoena, you would make a referral to the Department of Justice. You would say, hey, they are, this individual is breaking the law by ignoring a congressional subpoena. But sadly, the Attorney General, William Barr, has shown himself time and time again to uh, not have the, tr you know, the traditional uh, outlook of an Attorney General, which is that he serves the people of the United States and the Constitution with independence. Um, you know, the kind of thing that led to the Saturday Night Massacre in the Clinton, uh, sorry, the Nixon impeachment. Um, but William Barr very clearly looks at himself as the defense attorney for the President of the United States. And that came, that was very obvious when he mischaracterized the uh, Mueller report before anybody had a look at it. So much so, by the way, that Mueller, a man of very few words, felt that he needed to write to the attorney general and say, I'm not comfortable with your characterization of my report. But my, my point is that, um, that, yeah, we have a rogue attorney general um, who is acting quite clearly in defense of the president rather than in defense of the law or the Constitution. And that poses, in the midst of a potential constitutional crisis, some very, um, some very ugly questions. But yes, you're right. I mean, it, it, it helps to put this whole Russia investigation into some context. Um, first of all, there's no question that there was all sorts of misbehavior out there. And, 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 you know, there are indicted Russians. There are people sitting in jail today, you know, many people sitting in jail today because of the Russian activities of attacking our election. That's not in dispute anymore. What is also true, according to Bob Mueller, is that you know the Trump campaign's interaction with the Russians didn't result in, in crossing a bar of indictable conspiracy. Fine, let's, let's, let's stipulate that, that Bob Mueller is right about that. But the underlying there there is that there was this massive Russian attempt uh, to, uh, uh, to mess around with our elections. All kinds of Trump people welcomed it and then lied about it. And, and yet the president and his people are still taking the approach of saying, well, no, that's all a hoax. None of the facts, none of the convictions, none of the guilty pleas, none of the indictments matter because it's all a quote unquote hoax. And so we need to figure out who started this hoax. And so, you know, you've got the Justice Department in an unprecedented way, um, including the attorney general, asking those questions. And by the way, if it weren't, a profoundly uh, dark partisan political exercise, um, it's not unfair to ask the question, for example, um, you know, did the FISA warrant process work right with respect to Carter Page? That's a, that's a reasonable question to ask. That's sort of a congressional oversight question to ask. But when it's being asked for the express purpose of trying to show that something that is long established to be true was in fact a political hoax, um, that's a very ugly and very, very serious thing. Uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, it, it raises this bigger question, which is, if you take the the um, memorandum of the conversation between the president and President Zelensky of Ukraine um, on its face, you could argue that a crime occurred. 
several crimes, possibly, possibly uh, Federal Election Commission crimes, possibly um, other crimes. Um, and you could also argue, and some people have argued, that you actually don't need a lot more evidence. The president said it happened. The White House provided this memorandum of the conversation. There's been some other corroborating testimony. Uh, and that's enough. You could go and you could say this is an impeachable offense and you could move forward. And um, that's sort of the path of least resistance, grim and, and, and significant as it is. But when you look at what the president did in Ukraine, one of the things he did was he sought to have them reopen a discussion about a, 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 a long disproved conspiracy theory that Ukraine and not Russia was behind the 2016 hack. Uh, and some of the people involved here, including people who were um, uh, uh, paying for some of this activity, seem to be Ukrainian oligarchs who are tied to Russian money. And of course, we have seen in the past that oligarchs like that also have ties to Putin. Uh, uh, they, you know, the Manafort case comes into this thing. And it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to say what happened in Ukraine is in fact linked to what started to happen during the 2016 election with the Russians intervening. Uh, and I, by the way, I would add that you, you, your characterization of the Mueller conclusion, you know, I, I, I might modify slightly because uh, while he said he didn't have enough information to prosecute it, he said he might have had enough information had it not been for uh, obstruction and unwillingness of certain witnesses to cooperate and so forth. Uh, and that cuts to the core of this question, which is, it, there's a bigger case to be made here. And if the purpose of impeachment is to reveal the scope of the crimes and the depth of the problem that we face in order to ensure that such things don't happen in the future and foreign governments as well as domestic actors realize that there are consequences to this kind of behavior, which the president apparently does not yet, um, then perhaps you want to make a bigger case. And, you know, I think one of the big questions confronting Speaker Pelosi and the leadership and, and, and the members of committees like yourself is, do you, do you do the straightforward thing, which can be done quickly, or do you do the hard thing, which may have greater historical impact? Yeah, yeah, and and I think you just put your finger on the reason that there will be basically a deposition every single day, <laughs> you know, between now and 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 you know maybe the end of the month or so. Certainly this week, um, I, I I think that Speaker Pelosi understands um, both the need that this be comprehensive, um, and and by comprehensive I mean two things. Number one, the facts have to get out there. Um, you know, the facts have to get out there for the American people. The facts also have to get out there for the benefit of the federal bureaucracy, you know, for the many State Department foreign service officers, the, uh, the intelligence community people, the folks who have toiled away, not making much money, you know, in anonymity uh, for decades, who have seen things that they have devoted their lives to, um, you know, advancing foreign policy uh, that whether it was Republican or Democratic uh, president leading it, always had a rationale that went back to American national security and foreign policy interests. Now they've seen that shunted aside in favor of either 
quite likely corrupt political objectives or no obvious objective, as we've seen in Syria. I mean, it's just not at all clear what the president's uh, summary withdrawal of, of, a, of a number of troops from northern Syria accomplished other than, you know, really you know, really damaging our standing in the Middle East with our allies, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of those people need an accounting and they need to come back to a world where their government and in particular their Congress looks at them and says, this is not okay and we will fix it. So look, I think getting back to your original question, I think um, Speaker Pelosi understands that this, that this should not drag out, but that it should also be comprehensive um, and, and I also think she's not unmindful of the fact because she always comes back to public sentiment. Um, remember, impeachment, of course, as everybody knows, is a, is, a, is a political thing. It's why the founding fathers put it in the Congress rather than in the Supreme Court or elsewhere. She always comes back to public sentiment. And the more the public learns about this, the more the public understands that something is rotten in Denmark. And we've seen this in the polling, right? I mean, in the last two weeks, you know, up to 29%, according to one poll, of Republicans support an impeachment inquiry. So I think that the speaker understands that, that it needs to be comprehensive, quick, but that more facts are facts that, that, that are instructive uh, for, for, for the American people. Right, because I think making the case in the court of public opinion uh, is significant here, although I, I also think making uh, the case um, uh, before you know, historical judges is, is important because, of course, we set precedents for how future administrations can behave. Now, you brought right, up Syria. Right. You, you, you brought up Syria. And, you know, this is interesting in this context, uh, because, as you say, um, the decision by the president to greenlight the invasion of Syria by Turkish forces, uh, which came in a phone call between the president and President Erdogan on Sunday night, uh, and immediately resulted in an invasion, which had clearly been long planned, has not only betrayed the Kurds, who are our allies, but it has strengthened the Assad regime, it strengthened the Iranians, it's validated Erdogan, and perhaps most importantly, and, and in some cases rather stunningly, it's benefited Russia. And in one particular case, uh, there's a, a military facility which we just hand it over to the Russians. We, we built it, we protected it, we created it, and the, you know, based on the president's action, we just handed it over to them. And in fact, what we have done is essentially ceded more of Syria um, to Russian influence, and we've allowed the Turks uh, and the Russians, who very likely planned this thing out together, to grow closer, which has very significant consequences for NATO. And you've got to say to yourself, well, why would the president do this? And, you know, it's, it's again, it, it doesn't take a conspiracy theorist to, to look and say, well, the president did this with Russia. Um, the president has attacked NATO, which benefited Russia. The president has defended the Russian attack in 2016 repeatedly. Uh, uh, the president has attacked the CIA and the FBI while standing next to the president of Russia in Helsinki. The president got us out of the INF Treaty, um, which uh, ha has a benefit for Russia and undermines, uh, you know, U.S. push towards, you know, multilateral agreements that actually uh, have benefited us over the past 75 years. Uh, uh, the president, when he sat with Zelensky, said, you know, you should make a deal with Putin 
you know, that that that's going to be in your interest. Why don't you work something out over this Crimea thing? The president has been more dependably an advocate for Russia's national interests than American national interests. That can't be seen as entirely disconnected from all of this, can it? No, no, I don't. I, I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, and I would go beyond um, uh, your statement on Russia because I think it's at play in his conversation with Erdogan, which is, you know, for reasons I can't diagnose or understand because I have no psychological training, the president it, it just his knees buckle in the presence of strongmen. Um, you know, he praised Duterte in the Philippines for his drug eradication effort, which, of course, involved the extrajudicial murder of, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, he's he's infatuated, you know, in love with, to use his own words, Kim Jong-un, you know, an absolute totalitarian and murderous dictator. So, uh, again, I don't have the psychological training to understand why a man like that, you know, just turns to jelly in the face of um, people who are, you know, your traditional caudillos or dictators. Uh, but he does. And, um, you know, it, 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 it is perplexing. Uh, you know, if you being an isolationist, it's not a point of view that I agree with. I'm more in the sort of internationalist camp, but it's not an illegitimate position. Right. I mean, it's always been a current in our politics. And what's puzzling about this move in Syria is that there are probably 12 other moves that if you're in the isolationist camp, make more sense and in some ways are, are, are more in our interest than simply, you know, simply eliminating the one blocking position that we have in, in Syria. I mean, you could, you could really beat up on your NATO allies to get to 2%, as he does, but, you know, you could keep working that theme. That's a legitimate theme to work. But if you think about what just happened in Syria, you know, we never had enough uh, of a presence there to force an outcome. But we had enough of a presence to block some really horrible things, all of which are happening right now. We could block the Turks from murdering, you know, the only reliable ally we had in the fight against ISIS, the Kurds. We could block Assad to some extent from dropping bombs on schools and hospitals, at least in those areas. And we could block the Iranians from their strategic desire, which has been their strategic desire for a very long time, um, from having untrammeled access from Iran through Iraq, through Syria to Lebanon and Israel, what they call the Shiite Crescent, right? We just gave up all of those fundamental American tactical and strategic interests for what? For what? In fact, we don't even get a safer military. Our, our troops on the ground there are in a much more precarious position, surrounded as they are, being shelled as they are by the Turks, than they were a week ago. So it's just a – I wish I had an explanation for you, but uh, it is you know, just absolutely nothing achieved and an awful lot of awful things unblocked as a result of his move. Well, you know, I don't know that Occam's razor always works in foreign policy because it's pretty convoluted. Uh, but it is interesting that the president has this history of long ties to Russia and commercial interests in Russia um, and behaves as he does towards Russia. He's got a history of ties and I think two dozen uh, ent entities, Trump organization entities in Turkey. And he behaves the way that he does towards Turkey. Uh, he's got a history of ties with the Saudis. And even as he is saying he doesn't want endless wars, we're sending in uh, a couple thousand more troops into Saudi Arabia, a country um, that has massive uh, military resources already. Um, and, you know, these things kind of get dismissed because, well, it's just more of that 
that Trump noise. But when you look for any kind of pattern in an otherwise incoherent foreign policy, this is one of the few ones that stand out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yet another reason why uh, why it would be good to have a little bit more visibility into the president's uh, into the president's um, businesses and finances. Well, I agree with you. I think you've given us a little bit more visibility into uh, your thinking and the thinking of uh, Democrats in the Congress uh, in this very tumultuous time. I think that's really important uh, for our listeners. I'm very grateful uh, that you have taken the time and uh, uh, I, I trust that our listeners will follow you closely. This has been a conversation with Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut, member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, and someone you will see right at the center of these discussions. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.